Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast in Ukrainian Studies. I'm your host, John Shetichka. Joining me today is Dr. Alexandra Koidel, who is an assistant professor in the Department for Public Policy and Governance at the Kiev School of Economics. Today, we will discuss her recent book, which is titled How Patronal Networks Shape Opportunities for Local Citizen Participation in a Hybrid Regime, a Comparative Analysis of Five Cities in Ukraine. The book was published in 2022 by Ibadim Verlag and distributed by Columbia University Press. Alexandra, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks a lot for the invitation, John. I'm very glad to speak about my book today. Yeah, I'm so excited to finally talk to you and talk about this really important book. Um, and I, I sort of want to start with just acknowledging that, you know, as a historian, I'm not trained in political science and in some of the literature that you engage in in this book. So y- your work taught me a lot about um, really, the you know the the main concepts in your book, which are these informal business political networks, right, um, or what are called patronal networks, and you talk a lot about how these are intertwined with governments and politicians at the local level. So I want to start by asking you to just talk a little bit more about what patronal networks and hybrid regimes are, and then why these are so important for understanding politics in Ukraine. Right, so I will start with hybrid regimes. When there was a third wave of democratization, there was a sense that former Soviet countries are on the path of transformation that will lead to a democracy. After some years of observation, however, it became clear that the regimes, the political regimes that have formed in the previously Soviet republics have not democratized as expected. Rather, there was a feeling that they're stuck in some sort of state that is neither democratic nor authoritarian. And the idea was first to give them a label. And because they had institutions that looked democratic, but the decision-making within this institution was more um, in a style of authoritarianism, then they were called hybrid. There were also other interpretations of what hybridity is. At the same time, by about 2010s, there has been a lot of criticism of this hybridity because it tells us nothing about the, the nature of these regimes. And then came the next generation of researchers, for example, Henry Hale in the United States uh, and also Balint Magyar in Europe, uh, but also Alexander Fisun uh, in Ukraine and other researchers who started to look at what is the social background or social context of this political regime and how does this affect how people pursue the economic and political power? And the the difference in looking, instead of looking at hybrid regimes, looking at their social uh, social context is that we remo- we move from an idea that every the democracy is something that is by default to be practiced and that separation of power is something that is by default actually most societies as uh, Balint Magyar and Balint Matlovich show in their recent book 
most societies actually don't separate uh, public and private. That is a very recent uh, uh, invention in the Western Europe. And so this, this new... Um, theories, they started to look at how do people organize the pursuit of their economic and political gains. And this is where uh, paternal politics theory by Henry Hale comes in place, because he basically argues that uh, people pursue their economic and political goals through the networks of personal acquaintances, where the exchange is based on a bit of subordination between patron and client, so like a bigger boss and their client. And the uh, um, relations and the ties are exchange of personalized rewards, benefits, and also punishments. And then these networks, they form not around any personal idea like, you know, installing liberal democracy or liberal economic policy or communism or whatever, but they are forming around pursuit of this personalized private benefit. And so then these networks, they, they, uh, Henry Hale calls them uh, pyramids, because this is how they are often referred to in the region. They are not, not ideological. They are really like a pragmatic um, vehicle for people to achieve their goals. And uh, why this is important for understanding what's going on in the, um, in, the, uh, in the countries like Ukraine, especially Ukraine until 2014, is that um, then we cannot we, then when we see a politician we cannot be sure that this is just a politician because this person may also be an economic actor an entrepreneur and uh, may not differentiate much these roles um, and moving on this lack of differentiation of the roles coupled with pursuit of personalized benefit and this hierarchy creates foundations for a corruption. It is not equal to corruption, but it can be turned into corruption. And here maybe a, a small asterisk is that uh, all societies have these kind of networks and the paternalistic exchange is um, nothing that is very unique to a post-Soviet region. But in the, uh, in the in the course of the development of the Western Europe, there was sort of an agreement to learn to build institutions that limit these personalized exchanges and put some checks on them. And uh, the post-Soviet uh, uh, development in Ukraine until 2014 has been such that there were almost no, no checks of such kind. And uh, the, the society felt like this is the only way to go. And that is how a political system um, has emerged as, as, as we see it, uh, which was called hybrid. But there has been a change since 2014, and I'll be happy to talk about it if, uh, if you, you would like to. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's fascinating because I, it's sort of, uh, I think it's really important to make that point that you mentioned that these are not based around ideologies or, um, you know, certain ideological premises and wants, but instead, like you use the word pragmatic, which is a perfect way to describe it, I think of there are just there are economic gains to be had, right? There are things that people can obtain. And, um, you know, I, I you mentioned that these things changed since 2014. So yeah, I mean, I think it'd be interesting to hear. So what has changed then? What did 2014 do? Uh, I mean, obviously, 2013, 2014 is a big moment in Ukraine, right? Um, so, so you talked about, you know, these things leading up to 2014, but then, yeah, how have they changed since then? 
So it was, um, I would say that the demand for for a change has been mounting also on, uh, up to 2013 or 14. But what happened after is that new actors like civil society, like anti-corruption um, promoting donors, they entered into the field and especially the civil society and citizens, they started to claim a stake in the, in the political decision-making uh, of of the of Ukraine and um, developed a series of tools in order to participate in it. Um, at the national level, there were, for example, um, electro, uh, things like electronic petitions have been introduced, but also much more uh, profound uh, transparency laws, uh, asset declarations, um, uh, the, the public procurement system, which allows to monitor what's going on, uh, different formats of consultations uh, on the legislation that is about to be approved. They have been also introduced as mandatory to be used by uh, by the national authorities, uh, so the state authorities, but also local self-government. And this is this situation where I also start my uh, r- empirical research from. So there is this demand and the, there is a process of elaborating new tools and mechanisms for the for a citizen to be able to take part in the in my case local decision making and this um, is you could say this is a major challenge to patronal politics because uh, there is a new player coming in and basically in my book i look at how um, how there it's quite interesting that Patronal politics makes creates the conditions for the new actors to come in, which actually challenge the patronal politics. So this is an interesting paradox that uh, I understood uh, after completing my book, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting. And this is a perfect segue, actually, into sort of the the next thing I want to ask you about, which are which are the case studies that you use. Um, and, you know, you know, I, I, we'll get to the, uh, the specific case studies in a second, because your chapter on um, Kropivnitsky is really interesting to me because it, it highlights, I think, rather well uh, the way that competition drives uh, these patronal networks to allow citizen participation uh, to come in, which then helps booster them. And we can talk about that in a sec. But before we get there, I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate um, on why you chose the five cities that you did. Um, and these cities that you, you write about are Chernivtsi, Kharkiv, Kropivnitsky, Lviv, and Odessa. And, um, you know, I, I was sort of, it made a lot of sense to me because you cover a lot of different parts of Ukraine. And so I think that having some geographical breadth was obviously helpful for your study. And you talk about your cities covering sort of what you talk about to be the four macro economic regions in Ukraine. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about why you chose um, these five cities and what they offered to your studies that perhaps other places did not. Right. Well, I would say I just wanted to travel around Ukraine. But okay, it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not really the only reason. So I was uh, driven by mostly theoretical considerations because according to the patronal politics theory and my uh, elaboration on it, we can think of the uh, patronal networks uh, uh, or patronal networks to be arranged in pyramids. 
But then these pyramids themselves, they also have a way of interacting between each other. And here I uh, co combine uh, Henry Hale's conceptualization and also Christoph Steffes' work on um, modes of corruption or systems of corruption, where I elaborate three ideal types of uh, paternal network arrangements, starting from a single pyramid. So basically when one network subordinates or electors in, in a locality and up to a competition when there are several uh, networks competing and something like a coordinated arrangement in between. So I wanted to see, uh, I, I needed cases that would be, uh, would, that would follow um, one of these, uh, all of these three ideal types. But at the same time, I also had um, on my dependent variable, so the citizen participation instruments and their quality, there was also some variation, uh, which where I used the data of the Ukrainian Center for Independent uh, Political Research, who looked at the quality of this, uh, of these mechanisms. And, um, I re uh, and I realized, so while I, I take the three ideal types, then in all, but uh, but then in the coordinated one and in the competing one, there were also divergent outcomes. So in some cases, there there was a, a better quality of uh, participatory instruments, and in some there worse. And so I have like uh, a match of uh, three LDL types with two possible outcomes, and that is that is my sample. Where it was of course very difficult to understand what is the arrangement of patronal networks before I came to the cities. Uh, but I had a privilege of collaborating and working uh, with, uh, uh, with the researchers from the Anti-Corruption Research and Education Center from the Kiev Mohyla Academy in Ukraine, Oksana Hus, uh, Principal Investigator Max Bader, and uh, Oksana Nesterenko, who at that time did quite a substantial mapping uh, based on their um, interviews with anti-corruption activists of these structures in, in, the, in the city. So I could use their uh, conceptualization and, and their operationalization to see which are my potential cities in the three ideal types. And then I just had to match them to the, to the outcomes. And that was basically the selection uh, brought me to. Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, in this anti-corruption center at Kiev Mohila, I mean, I think people who who work in this sort of field know how important that center is and the work that the people there do. Uh, and I, I understand like how you know foundational that is to help researchers like you do this kind of work. And so, I mean, were there so you you have these case studies, these five case studies that are really rich in um, theoretically diverse, and each place is a little bit different than the other, although there are some overlapping, I think, interests among them. Uh, one thing I couldn't help but notice in all of your case studies was uh, the role of the mayor and how important mayors are. And I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit more about that and, you know, what the role of the mayor is. Because I, I, I think for some audiences, you know, I, I don't think about my mayor that much here in the U.S., to be honest. They are an important political figure, but um, they have really important uh, network capabilities in in your book. And I'm wondering if you could just speak a little more about that. Right. So mayors are very interesting figures uh, in Ukraine because according to the uh, law on the local governance, uh, they have 
quite a strong position, in fact. Ukraine follows the so-called uh, strong mayor f- of, of model of local governance, when the mayor is, on the one hand, is an elected politician, directly elected by uh, vote in the locality every five years, um, but he's also the head of the executive simultaneously. So you can, uh, and as an elected politician, the mayor is also a member or quite often at least a member of a political party or a group that also runs into for the local council, also elected uh, every five years in the simultaneous elections with the mayor. And so we have, we have basically one person that on the one hand has a political uh, capital, might have a party or a um, some some sort of you know the as a, as a politician, but also has this executive authority in the, the executive vertical. In a way, this is like a strong presidential system, uh, if you if you can think of um, on at the, compared to the national level. And um, another peculiarity of the Ukrainian uh, local governance is this: more often than not, mayors are also um, known or in successful entrepreneurs in Ukraine. So there are, uh, I would say with some exceptions, uh, these uh, mayors often have an experience in the in the, in the business sector or even continue uh, having uh, um, owning an enterprise, for example, or a larger industrial also enterprise while being a mayor. So there are different constellations. And then this gives them yet another type of resource, which I call treasure, according to Christopher Hood in my book, but basically that is money. Uh, and this is now the peculiarity of the uh, yeah, election campaign, right, that you need money to, to be able to run and so on. So that's why having all these resources, on the one hand, the organization of the political system at the local level makes a mayor a strong figure no matter what the person is, but also the peculiarity of the political um, competition uh, it, it, and the, the one that invites entrepreneurs into the, uh, into the political sphere, this also gives them yet another resource. So this is, this is very interesting and, um, considering, and also considering the power of a mayor, even legally, it also makes it a very um, attractive job, actually. Uh, for 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 people who are uh, who want to exert influence, because then we come to the situation that the the mayor, being the head of the executive, also and the one that presides over the local council um, meetings and uh, agenda and and uh, procedures, uh, this this person can have uh, can can consolidate quite a lot of power. So I have to say that, of course, if we have a competing arrangement, it's a little bit different because there could be alternative power centers that also challenge the mayor. So it is not predestined that there will be a concentration of power, but it can be. And then um, the mayor becomes a really powerful figure, figure at the local level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's another thing that I wanted to ask you about, too, is the competition among these networks. Um, and I sort of have like two questions about that, actually. One to follow up on what you just said is, um, you know, these, these networks sort of reinforce the power that these individuals have. And um, it seems often male individuals, although that's something else I wanted to ask you about too, um, you know, this gender component. But first, I guess I'll just start with 
how how does one enter these patronal networks? Are they sort of born into these things? Do they enter them if after they've made their money and uh, hoping to influence more? Or how does this work? I, I guess I'm curious, how easy is it to become part of these networks? Um, and, you know, how, I guess, yeah, if you could speak more to that of uh, how does one become involved in these things? So there's no single path, uh, but quite often this starts in Ukraine, at least from the uh, commercial activities in the 1990s, or from the privatization of the um, the state enter- enterprises back in the day, also in the 90s. Uh, these would be people that might know each other from uh, school, from uh, military, some, maybe they were serving in the same unit, now, now I'm talking about the like the older generations of those that have uh, entered into uh, politics uh, soon after the uh, after Ukraine has gained or regained uh, its independence in 1991. So that is one way. Another, uh, the, these networks were formed also from trade uh, pe- people who used to trade in different goods with the west i don't know somebody imported computers it was a very very lucrative business that's how you made your first capital then you need to protect it and uh, that was a way to protect your capital was to enter politics it, at, at the time so now we're talking 90s then later uh, one could become uh, uh, engaged in this uh, then there is also a criminal aspect so some of the mayors in my book uh, one of them passed away already but the mayor of Kharkiv he had a, a like a recorded criminal past so it's another way of, of entering these networks sometimes uh, also it also depends on your uh, qualities as a person, actually, how far you can make it in, into these networks. Henry Hale has a very nice uh, discussion about it as well. He, call, he calls us, if you are not a lame duck, that you can actually make it quite far in, in, in the pyramid. So, and, and, and that is true. And on another hand, for example, like the mayor of Lviv was gaining his influence. He quite soon understood that the public, the civic, especially urban activists, are his resource to stay in power, to make uh, good uh, policies that would be uh, compatible uh, with uh, uh, with what, what the citizenry wanted and make him politically then successful and also give him some independence from the national level. Then uh, he he created ways and institutions in order to obtain this feedback from the public um, in the city really early enough. So he campaigned already in two thousand six on on a platform of urban development and uh, engaged civic activists, urban civic activists. So there's really, I would say, the ways are really different. Um, interestingly, is that those who started to get, to enter politics later, and especially I'm talking 2015 uh, and uh, even later 2020, they may not necessarily be part of these networks, and that is a, this positive development which um, I don't uh, I I have I mentioned it in my book, but that is really not the focus. For example, in Kropivnitsky, uh, the first uh, secretary was a person who who is a rather small entrepreneur. I think he manufactures 
uh, garage doors in the city and yet he was uh, collaborating with the civil society activists who were pro-transparency, pro-participation, and he was able to use the, the competition between the patronal networks that were already established in order to squeeze in those changes that were needed uh, for uh, extended participation of the, of the public in the city. So that is one of the changes that has been happening in Ukraine since 2014, um, which is very important. Uh, and I, th I think it leads us to, to democratization or, or has been leading Ukraine to democratization. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's something that I picked up in your book, too, is, you know, just how important um, the revolution of dignity was to, to get people sort of not that they weren't interested before, of course, but um, more interested and more um, sort of, I don't know, um, you know, engaged in wanting to know, as you eloquently put it in your book, what's going on behind closed doors. Uh, you know, people are starting to hold their politicians accountable in different ways. And it makes a lot of sense to me that uh, these politicians would then take what their citizenry has to say more seriously and sort of um, engage in that in order to, you know, to boost their own networks. And so that didn't surprise me when you wrote about that. That made a lot of sense. Um, I was also wondering, too, if you could, you know, if, if you could talk a little bit about the gender dynamics within these patronal networks. So I did not specifically study it, but you are really right that it's mostly men engaged in this. And I think because the pat these patronal networks are a heritage from much um, earlier times, there is a lot of, uh, again, Mikhail, uh, Mikhail Minakov, he talks a lot about it, how the former nomenclatura reestablished itself as uh, successful entrepreneurs and patrons and politicians and so on. So that is a heritage of this uh, political system, which really did not uh, give women um any visibility or any promotion so it is i i think that is path dependency that that we are we are seeing here and um, it is interesting that indeed no mayors of regional center in ukraine is a woman at the same time as we go more down the administrative level up to the amal amalgamated romadas or before the decentralization reform village level we will see a lot of women doing this job also because it's quite um, you know at, at before 2014 decentralization reform all other uh, uh, administrative units except so-called cities of oblast uh, significance, so there would be regional centers and another about 100 cities. They had basically no resources, but a lot of problems. And uh, in a way, it was not the job, maybe so many men, or at least it was a job that women were ready to, up to take. Now we see now we see that in amalgamated hermanas uh, uh, or communities after the decentralization reform, uh, the, um, there are more women entering uh, as mayors and also as councillors. But let's say this is not yet at the regional uh, center level. But I, I think it's a matter of time, and I hope soon after our victory there will be elections where there will be women also running for office and, uh, and winning. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's true. And, you know, we're, we're reading in the news about some of these maybe not higher level politicians, but like you said, 
uh, wherever they fall in that sort of hierarchy of local government, uh, you know, we read about some of these heroic women in the news right now and um, the the work that they're doing. And so I, I just found it astounding because I, I know, you know, that's not your main focus, but I couldn't help but notice uh, that men sort of dominated in, in, in these realms. And so I thought that was important to talk about. Um, one more thing on these cities, I was wondering if there were cities that you wanted to include studies on that would add, I don't know, diversity to to the patronal network um, sort of understanding of how they work. You know, I was just, it made me think of, huh, why not, why not Kyiv? Or, um, you know, I, it just got me thinking about different places in Ukraine or Dnipro or somewhere like that. Um, uh, are there other case studies that maybe you wanted to include or maybe in the future you will consider studying? Yeah, so I did, uh, at least in, in this uh, case selection, it was really theoretically driven and I wanted to have as much as possible prior information before I go a case into a case. That's why I'm uh, pretty satisfied actually with, with the case selection. At the same time, while we were doing a different project uh, with the uh, Kiev School of Economics and the Anti-Corruption Research and Education Center on uh, political will against corruption, I also saw an interesting dynamics in the city of Vinnytsia, which I think would be very interesting to explore because it has a, you, you can see there is an engagement of business, but it's very constructive from, from what I could understand. Uh, also, they have interesting ideas about open government and the engagement of uh, civil society in a very systematic level. So I think it would be interesting to, stu- to study this. And um, there were, of course, Kyiv is a case I had to consider, but I decided not to go for it because as a capital city, it has a different status in Ukraine and it also has a very different dynamics because there you have a national and local patronal networks you know, competing for influence, for resources, and that is a, not a comparable dynamics, for example, to Lviv, which is a regional center, or Kropovnitsky. So, yeah, something like that along this line. Yeah, that that's sort of what I was I was wondering and that was my hunch is that there was a lot going on in the capital and sort of hard to untangle which also led me to I wanted to ask you too just quickly of are there places in Ukraine where these patronal networks don't exist and there are different things happening? Interestingly, uh, it's it's not that the patronal networks don't exist. It's um it's a, rather a question whether an alternative method of coordination between politicians and business exists. And in Ukraine, mostly the um, uh, patronal coordination and non-patronal coordination, they are existing in parallel. And I re- I'm, uh, I wrote a chapter for uh, Balint Magyar and Ma- Balint Madlovich's book, which will be about uh, how the... Russian war against Ukraine has affected what they call patronal democracy in Ukraine. And there I highlight uh, the case of Lviv, where actually patronal and and, uh, so-called collaborative coordination, they coexist. And this alternative is is a very interesting that this is something it took me quite some time to understand really what was going on. But basically, you have actors who are business people, they might or might not have public office, not too high, but uh, let's say having a public office and influence, but also being civic activists. 
they also form networks, but which are more, much more horizontal in nature and they are value-based. Um, these networks that I'm talking about, they are based on the value of making Lviv the um, economically competitive city and uh, like, a, like a city of uh, a hub for creative professions. That's how they talk about themselves. And so they, they become... Um, they create networks which also include public officials who also share these values and the difference and and in fact they also they have access to local authorities quite easily they meet them in informal fora so on the surface you will you might even mix them with patronal networks but once you see that there is value-based coordination and their normative rules rather than uh, all this personalized exchange of rewards and benefits you see the difference and i think this is the new this is the transformation that has been taking place in ukraine even before 2013-14 the revolution of dignity but it was accelerated with the revolution of dignity and i believe it is accelerated also because of the uh, Russian invasion or Russian full-scale invasion in 2022. And what does it mean? So I don't think we find any city where there is no patronalism, but we rather find cities where this alternative coordination is stronger or weaker. And maybe that will give us different outcomes in terms of public policy and also citizen participation. And and I think here Lviv shows us quite interesting example because the um, the city has a powerful IT cluster, which also is very intertwined with uh, tourism industry and with the local universities, Ukrainian Catholic University and the National Ivan Franko University. And they formed these clusters that have been working for since at least 2009 in different constellations, but on this idea of making this, the Lviv city for creative people for creative industries and um, having really this collective benefit. And we also understand that it's quite rational because, of course, IT cluster will benefit if there is better employees are coming to, to, to live in the city. But this is not a personalized benefit. This is really like a impersonal benefit that might or might not take place, but they still engage for it. So... And I think we will see more, uh, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I think we will see more of the, of this kind of alternative coordinations, non-patronal, because there is a big demand for that in Ukraine. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, that was a great history, too, because, you know, when I when I spent time studying at Uku in Lviv and, you know, I met a lot of these uh, tech professionals that were in the city and you could sort of feel the energy there. You know, this was in uh, maybe 2018, 2019. Uh, and I was there in the summers and, you know, uh, there was a lot of that tech energy around and, you know, they were even building new places to live for these tech workers and these new buildings where this tech industry would be housed. So that's, that's really interesting to hear about all that and then learn about the networks that sort of influence the tech industry, which I find fascinating. Um, that's really interesting. So well, and the tech uh, industry itself is, is in these networks. They, they are these networks in, in a way. Uh, it's it's really amazing. Um, yeah. yeah, like these tech tech networks within the the broader patronal networks. You know, it gets very complicated. <laughs> yes, uh, that's fascinating though. Um, so I want to sort of switch gears here, actually, and um, I want to ask you about the interviews you conducted. So your book, I think it you conducted something like fifty seven interviews. Is that right? Um, 
which give just uh, like these yeah yeah and it, it, it's sort of a, a main source base for your book and i think that these are really interesting really valuable um i love that you have some of the questions you know in the in the back of your book uh, so people can sort of see what you were asking them which is just very transparent too uh, but i really like that so um you know these interviews are with sort of all kinds of people, citizen participation experts, local politicians and officials, and then these representatives of civil society of, of you know, uh, various threads. And I found these interviews pretty illuminating. And I'm wondering if you can say more about your experience as an interviewer and what it was like to talk with these people, because um, you make clear who was willing to talk to you. Obviously we know that because you tell us like who these, not necessarily their names or anything, but you know, their sort of position in society. But I was wondering if you could tell us maybe who was not willing to talk with you. Um, and I just imagine that members of some of these networks don't always like people digging around in their business um, is my guess. And maybe I'm wrong, but I'm curious if you encountered any resistance while doing your work about people who maybe found you to be snooping too much or asking the wrong types of questions. So I'd just be curious to know what it was like to interview these people. And then if you encountered any, you know, anyone that was not happy with what you were doing. So, yeah, I was, first of all, I want to say I was myself extremely surprised how many people also, those that I do assign to the patronal coordination, they agreed to talk. Uh, also because patronalism, as I want to really highlight, it is not um, something, it's not corruption or uh, a crime. That's why we can talk about it. Like, of course, you don't use this uh, academic term. You just ask, whom do you promote or don't promote or uh, who you do collaborate with on this or who was helping you, not helping you and uh, many many other ways or, or you can even ask who in your opinion is influencing the the politics here so people are usually talking about it because i am not doing um really <laughs> forensic investigation here all right on the other hand of course not everybody wanted to talk to me uh, but it all um, because interviewing is a voluntary exercise so basically when you just uh, send out a request via email or Facebook or or coming through their the uh, the aids to these people they just don't respond or they just say that they have no time so the more polite ones they just say there is no time that's why I can't say I experienced any um, uh, any negative uh, any negative uh, attitude to me just because I I realized that and it's also need to be clear that I did not get to the people who did not want to be for me to, to talk with them. So, yeah. So maybe okay, a bit so, more trivial than, no, no, than it's you expected. Fine. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I expected stories of, you know, people dodging you and dodging your questions. And um, yeah, it's an important point, of course, that what you're talking about is not corruption. But I assume, you know, um, like you said, these sort of networks can set foundations for corruption to happen. And I just, I figured that somebody like you, very intelligent, very smart, asking good questions about how these things exist, you know, uh, people might be a little fearful that it could lead to discoveries of something that they don't want to be discovered. So I'm glad to hear that people were very receptive to talking with you. And um, that's, that's, I mean, I think that's great. 
And, and maybe also one more note, uh, when you talk to politicians, they are politicians, they are quite uh, well-versed also in the media work. So uh, it is also clear for me that some things they did not tell me, which they could, but for that I used triangulation, I used interviews with uh, local civil society, investigative journalists, and I also used their own public interviews where they might have been a different position expressed and also documentation and protocols. Uh, so I, I tried really to go to triangulate, if not every phrase in my interview, but a lot of things. And I also used uh, the approach from, I learned it from uh, Christoph Staffes also, is that if you can't find at least two sources that are more or less independent, I did not use this data, even though sometimes it was really tempting <laughs> to use it. But uh, for me, it's important that um, I can be sure of, of what I'm of what I'm saying. Yeah, you're you're corroborating your research. I mean, that's just good practice. Right. Yeah, that makes uh, yeah that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, I, so I sort of want to, I guess, conclude by bringing. I mean, your your work is really from around 2014 to 2019, and I, I just I sort of want to ask you about the present moment, though, um, just because I, I I'd be curious to know what you have to say about it. Um, and that is to say, you know, what is the role of these passional networks during the war? And I'm wondering if Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine has had any impact on the way that these networks function, and if so, how? And I'm also curious if these passional networks will continue to exist in post-war Ukraine in the same way, or if you see these sort of relationships and hierarchies and networks changing in any sort of dramatic fashion after the war right it's a uh, it's questions that a lot of researchers in my field are asking and researchers of ukraine and also that's why there is the book uh, by magyar and matlovich about it where there is contemplation but let's say we are definitely seeing a transformation we don't know yet in which direction but ukraine is transforming away from this hardcore Patronalism, at least because we see the, uh, we cannot identify a very clear business group or interest having their very clear representation in their public offices, as it was under Yanukovych time or even under uh, the time of Yushchenko, and even partially Poroshenko. So we definitely see a transformation at the local level. I. It's hard for me without being in the field to understand what has happened to the in the cities where I have done my research. Um, some indications point to different to point otherwise allow me to make some conclusions. So for example, in the cities where um, there has been worries that the cities might be a weak chain in the in the defense of Ukraine and Ukraine's resi- resilience, namely, uh, actually not the cities, but the authorities, Kharkiv and Odessa, they have they have been, uh, let's say there was uh, a ground to think that they might not be so resilient and um, so resistant. We see that the local elites and these networks that I have looked at, they clearly subscribe to Ukrainian sovereignty and um, they stand with Ukraine for Ukraine. And uh, we see that they're the, the city is uh, the, we don't see any 
republics or anything like that. Uh, or actually the other way around, right? We see a very strong defense. So that is a very important result um, of decentralization reform. So these local um, local elites, they understand that they will not have so much um, independence, autonomy, should, God forbid, there would be Russia there. Uh, on the uh, it's one thing one uh, what I see another what I see in interestingly interesting development in Kropivnitsky and the mayor of Kropivnitsky who was re-elected in 2020 he is now since I believe March or April last year he is the head of the Kirovograd Oblast military administration so the city does not have a mayor formally uh, but the mayor performs the functions of one higher level, which is in the state vertical, so in the presidential vertical, basically, because military administrations are former state administrations. It is hard to say what influence that would have on political regime, but for me, it's an indication of commitment also of the industrial group that this mayor is linked to, to the to Ukraine. And uh, it seems like the state is now in such a situation that you have to combine state and private resources in order to resist uh, the the genocidal invasion by Russia. So that is also an interesting observation. And a third observation which I made um, is rather on the cases of Lviv is that this collaborative um, coordination has come to really a next level. So we see how IT cluster is, has a whole cluster of projects for the uh, for, for the victory, and the cluster has helped to, to modernize the uh, air air defense unit in the in the Lviv region. And we have to see that this is not a case when um, when the state gives uh, or procures services from a provider that is actually volunteering. So in, uh, in our, um, in political science terms, we see a partnership developing between these private actors uh, and the, uh, uh, the government, uh, basically the, the state in the name of the uh, Lviv uh, Oblast Military Administration. It puts the state and the citizen on the same level rather than the citizen being like a client that you have to serve or a service provider. No, they, they are co-deciding what needs to be done in order to modernize the air defense system. And also we see how IT cluster has been contributing to the rehabilitation center that is, uh, is placed in Lviv for the veterans and uh, for their families and for all people who have suffered because of the Russian uh, missile strikes and their strikes. So long answer, um, but what is now for, for the future is really hard to say because everything, a lot will be dependent how long uh, Ukraine still needs to resist before R- Russia finally withdraws uh, from, from our territory. What will be the... Um, architecture and uh, and constellation of power at the geopolitical level but what is important and what if what a lot of people are working now already is that to make sure that whenever we talk about recovery and reconstruction that the local authorities are represented as a you know on par with the state authorities because even though we can speak about all the um you know there are still authorities they can still be 
any problems with governance or integrity, but since the local authorities are so much under the observation of the of the local people, of citizens, then they can be more easily uh, driven to accountability than if they have nothing to say in building, let's say, a school or another object in, on their territory. That's why it's so important to include them also in the in the recovery discussions. Yeah, I, I think that's crucial. And that's, I mean, I think it's a great place to end of reminding, um, you know, all of us that recovery includes a lot of people and that these local actors play a fundamental part in that and they will be part of the reconstruction, which is, you know, starting now in many ways, but will be a longer term project for Ukraine. Um, no, this has been amazing. So today we've been discussing Alexandra Coidel's book called How, uh, How Patronal Networks Shape Opportunities for Local Citizen Participation in a Hybrid Regime, a Comparative Analysis of Five Cities. It was published by Ibidem Verlag in 2022. Uh, you can pick up a copy now. Alexandra, thank you so much for this really insightful and engaging discussion. I learned a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, John, and great questions. Thank you.